Welcome, and thank you for listening to Waypoint Community Church Podcasts. We hope you enjoy. I'm glad you're here. We're a couple ways, uh, weeks away from Easter. It's given us an opportunity to set up Easter a little bit. Uh, for instance, next week, we're going to have a Passover meal here. We're going to fill the room with tables and uh, deck it out with a Passover meal. If you've never done that before, I hope you'll come back. If you have and you want friends and family to experience that, invite them along. I think it'll be great. Uh, this week, we're going to use our time to ask a simple question. How does God approach mankind? How does God approach you? And we're going to use uh, something in the Easter story that gets us there. So we're going to use a, a picture. The reason this is important is because if you have the wrong picture in mind of how God approaches you, you could make some really bad decisions. If you believe that God is angry with you all the time when he approaches you, you'll think different about the choices that you have to make. If you're afraid of God as he approaches you, you'll make bad decisions. If you think, I, I'm going to have to do more so that God will even like me to approach me, you'll make horrible decisions. And so we're trying to figure out how it is that God approaches us. The church has had lots of conversations with how we approach God. You've heard the term, um, or maybe you haven't, maybe you're new to church and you haven't heard somebody talk about the fear of the Lord. It's this idea that you would have this sense of deep reverence as you approached an almighty, powerful being. It would just make sense that you would have some level of respect for that. And so we've talked a lot about how we would approach, but we're talking about how that person with power approaches us and trying to find a way to get the right picture. In Jesus' time, Rome held all the power, and they had no trouble at all making sure that you knew that and rubbing your face in it. And if you took your picture of what power and strength was, if you thought that was stronger, and you thought, oh, Rome's got all of this power, but God has more strength, he's got more power, it must be worse than Rome, you'd be in trouble. See, here's what's fascinating. Because Rome acted with this sense of strength and power and projecting that power to the world, it provided an opportunity for God. He could, as the one who actually held all power, create a distinction with how you would see things. And I, and I say that specifically. For many people in Jesus' time, they couldn't read and write. So they had to actually see something different. They had to actually see a picture, see an image, see something that was contrasting against what they, were, what they knew to be true. And, and when, when they saw the contrast, then they could deal with that. And so Jesus does that. I want to take you to a story this morning where that kind of contrast exists. But here's the problem. It's, it's almost lost to us because the people that Jesus would have done that in front of knew about Rome. They knew what they did. They knew their practices. They knew what they valued. And because we've lost that, sometimes we'll read a section of scripture and we get some stuff out of it that's good. But we miss the depths of what's there because it was intended to be contrasted against something that was going on in the Roman Empire. So this morning, I want to start outside of the scriptures. I want to take you to ancient Rome, 
And I want to help you understand a tradition that they had started that everybody in Jesus' time understood. They knew this. So when Jesus went and did something that kind of got close to it, they would have all been able to connect the dots and go, ooh, wow, this is really different. Okay, so that's where we're headed. Uh, I want to take you um, back to an ancient tradition that Rome had for encouraging their generals to help expand their borders. It's the only way to say it, because you could not receive this honor if you um, were in a civil war and you won. It was good, they were glad that you did that, but you would not be honored in this way. The only way you could receive this honor was based on three things. So there were three things that were big. I'm sure there was more. I'm giving you like the cliff notes on this. I'm giving you the brief stuff because we're going to have to move fast. Okay? But here's the three. You had to be the general of an army that had just killed at least 5,000 people in a battle. So this is not, these are not small numbers we're talking about. They were encouraging for you to go in and really decimate somebody. If you killed Romans to keep Rome together, that's great. We appreciate it. If you kill a lot of somebody else, we'll honor you. Okay? So um, they killed at least 5,000 people. Can you put the second one up because my brain has gone mushy? Oh, that's it. Um, it had to be a major battle. So it either had to be the end of the war or there was a turning point in the war or there were small numbers and you defeated a bigger army or there was some kind of strategic thing and they wanted to present you as, look, we are stronger. Look at how great we are. We defeated this army in this way. And so they'd want to put that on display and, and bring that to Rome. And the, um, the third thing is it had to be either the suppression of rebellion of a province they already had or the expansion into new territory. Again, this is about projecting Rome's power and they're wanting to find a way to communicate to everybody. We hold power. Don't mess with us. So after an event like this, the war would be over. The province would be settled. The army would make its way back and they would camp outside of Rome. They wouldn't go into Rome. The Senate would actually leave Rome and come to them. And they would gather all the intel based on what happened with the battle. What, how many were defeated? How important was this? They'd gather all this information. And if they determined that it met the standard, they would declare that a triumphal entry would be granted. And uh, the Senate would pay for this. This was a big deal. There was actually preparation that would have to go into place. So if they determined that this was going to happen, then the Senate would start financing this. And the reason they would have to finance this is, in some cases, the decorations. They would line the street with garlands. So they were trying to make a big deal out of this. But they were also have to have money to bribe people to show up. So when you came that day, they would, they would have um, tokens that they would throw out. And you could get free food. If you're a slave in Rome, you didn't eat every day. So if somebody's offering you a chance for food, you showed up. You would be given chances to go to games and theaters, all kinds of stuff. You could win stuff. So you would show up for this thing. And when the day arrived, um, this whole thing would be set. The, the, it's decorated. There's people there. And in comes the procession. 
Leading the procession is the Senate because this is all about the elevation of Rome. They wanted to take credit for this. So they were first. There would be a few more small groups after that. And then the general, the general who's being honored for his projection of power for Rome. And he would be in a chariot with four horses, really um, great horses. The whole thing would have been decked out, decorative. It would have looked incredible. Um, in the chariot, that general is now wearing purple garment. And if you've heard me talk about Rome, you understand um, that the clothes communicated to everybody your status. You could know by looking at somebody whether they were slave, whether they were free, where their position in the pecking order of Rome was. This guy was, it was like a special program, king for the day, right? He was king for the day. He got to put on purple garments and display to everybody, I'm pretty special. Standing behind him in the chariot was a slave who held a golden crown over his head, not on his head, over his head, and whispered in his ear the whole time this, you are still a mere mortal. You are still a mere mortal. Because they wanted to elevate the guy. They wanted him to be honored, but they didn't want it to go to his head so he would think that he was a god of some sort. And so they had this whole procession in place where this is going on. The people in the streets who have been bribed to be there are yelling. This is a very noisy kind of celebration. And they're yelling, triumph, victory, you're the winner. Like all of this, it's chaotic. And this guy's feeling special as these people come marching in. Behind him is his army. Some um, writers suggested that they sang songs for their generals. Others suggested that they did whatever they wanted and nobody really said anything. And so they were a pretty uh, raucous group that would come into the city. Behind them was a long group of people who were, they were bound in chains. These were captives. If things had gone really well for that general, he had captured the king or the leader of the province that he was um, kind of trying to control. He, he captured their whole court. He captured their families. Anybody who was associated with supporting that rebellion was being drugged through Rome in chains in an attempt to humiliate them and to communicate to the rest of the world, this is what power and strength looks like. We dominate our enemies and we drag them behind us like the dogs that they are. Now listen, their humiliation was the only be the beginning of this, but that'll come later. The procession would go through Rome to the center of Rome, where the general who had been given a laurel, it was a sign of victory and power, and he'd been carrying this the whole time, would get out of his chariot and enter into the uh, temple of Jupiter. It was always in the center of Rome. And he would go and he would sacrifice that, kind of lay that on the altar of Jupiter, basically saying, Jupiter gave us this power, gave us this strength, and we're putting it on display. So there would be that kind of ceremony there. He would walk out of the temple. He would stand on the steps, and he would make a declaration over the city. Uh, it was considered a blessing or a curse almost every time. It was a blessing. You got to think... Uh, people were there to cheer and be excited. They knew that was expected. They were giving free gifts, so most people did that. If they didn't meet his expectation, though, he could step out, and there were a few recorded times where the person being honored 
actually placed a curse on the city. At that point, all the ceremony stuff was kind of over. The party had just begun. Uh, the party lasted for the rest of the day, and what that meant was all those things that you got, those free foods, the theater, the um, stuff to go to the Colosseum, that all kicked off. And what that meant was all those people that were being dragged behind were now killed for your entertainment. They would put them in with wild animals and let them be torn to pieces. They'd put them in with gladiators, and the gladiators would kill them. Some of the important ones, like the kings, the rulers, those leaders, they would set front and center and have somebody important come out and kill them in front of everybody. Why? To tell you that when we hold power and have strength, there's nobody like us. And Rome projected this power to all of these people watching. Welcome to Rome. By the way, if you want your party to go long, if you want it to extend, you better have enough people to kill for the whole day. So you would bring a lot of people back that would be entertainment for everybody else as they watched them get killed. It was brutal, it was cold, it was cruel, and that's Rome. And they said, this is power. And I'm going to tell you right now, if your idea of power and strength came from that picture and you thought that God was stronger, what kind of fear would you have for that God? So God had this desire to paint a different picture, to help you understand that somebody who actually did hold power, how they would respond and act, what that would look like in a healthy way. And so what we find in the scriptures is a story that's recorded in all four gospels. Um, we're going to put those up on the screen right now. Um, it's actually really helpful that it's in all four Gospels because they have different details in each one. And when you put all the details together, you start to understand that what you're getting is a contrast and comparison between a triumphal entry and something that Jesus was doing that would have been like a triumphal entry his way. Now, over time, this has uh, changed in the scriptures. When I was younger, the heading above this, all of these sections of scriptures, a lot of times in, in your Bible, you'll find headings above groupings of text where somebody kind of tells you this is what happens next, and it's really helpful. And when I was younger, what was written above there was triumphal entry. What's written in most modern translations right now is this, Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. And it's there because there's a desire to emphasize a prophecy that's being fulfilled by what Jesus is doing here, which I think is awesome. It is a, it is a prophecy that's being fulfilled. We're, we're going to look at that and show you that that's the case. I wish they would just leave out those titles altogether because sometimes it puts in your mind what you're looking for and what you're reading for, and you can miss the images and pictures that God intended to be there so that you could think deeply about stuff. So that's what I want to help you do. I want to, I want to take you into this, and I want to look at some of the details that are in these texts. The details that seem minor, but they're significant because they tell a contrasting story about what it actually means to be stronger and to have power. And it says everything about how God approaches you. So I want to look at one of those details. We're going to start um, with the Roman general. He entered 
he entered Rome in a chariot, four horses, strong horses. He's got all kinds of great clothes on. He's got a crown over his head. All of this stuff is going on, right? Jesus enters kind of in a different way, and he does it on purpose. Now, this is recorded in Mark chapter 11, verse 2. Jesus turns to his disciples and says this, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. I, I grew up uh, training horses that would eventually be used by eight, nine, and ten-year-olds with a whole purpose that if you put somebody that young on the horse, they'd be alive after the whole experience was over. That is a long process. And it starts with a colt. That's when we would start the process. We'd put them with, um, tie them up with a halter. We'd secure them really heavily. And then we would start spooking them. Like we would wave things. We would make noises. And they would flip out. I mean, they, um, and, and they would continue to flip out for a long period of time until they could come to this sense. Oh, this isn't going to hurt me. I'll be okay. And over time, that would, you would work that down. Then you would put a saddle on their back, and they would flip out, right? Eventually, a person would have to get on their back. We didn't like to miss that. That was a lot of fun to watch. They didn't let us do that because we were young. So the older guys would do that, and you had to do that well because if that colt bucked you off, you just trained it that the way it can deal with its problem is to throw a big enough fit to get rid of you. So when you finally did get on its back, you were in for a ride, and you better stay there. This was good times, right? This, is, this was a lot of fun. Here's what I can tell you, because I've had experience with colts. They're not full-grown. They're not impressive. The only thing that you can say about them is they are a scary nightmare. And that's what Jesus chose. I'd like to ride the scary nightmare. By the way, I'm talking about horses. That's not what Jesus is riding. Uh, coming from a horse guy, I don't know where you're at in life, but this is where I'm at. Horses are up here. Donkeys are down here, right? They're stubborn. They were worse to work with. We didn't want to deal with them. They were just trouble. And Jesus is riding the colt of a donkey. Why? Why is he making this choice? I think there's a couple reasons. One is the prophecy that was made in Zechariah about this very moment. So Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus consistently made choices that said, I'm Messiah. This is one of those. When people were like, I'm not sure if he is or not, he did everything he could, fulfilling every section of scripture that said only the Messiah would do this. He did those things over and over. But I want you to see something else in this verse, because I think it's significant. It said he was just, righteous, endowed with salvation. You're going to find out that's important. Humble. My text says lowly that the almighty creator of the universe, God almighty himself, 
decided to approach lowly, humble, as a servant to you and I. It's, it's mind-boggling. But do you understand the contrast that we're looking at here? You have a Roman being elevated in a grand chariot. Incredible horses. He's got the dress. He's got the garb. He's got a crown hanging over his head. And our king, who holds all power. Don't miss this. He was strong. Not just strong, he was stronger. And his choice was lowly, humble. Do you think of God approaching you that way? Do you think when God wants to find a way to talk to your heart, to deal with you, to ask you to take a, a, an adjustment in your life towards him, that he's coming at you with some sort of anger, that you should be afraid? Because the spirit that he wanted you to understand, that he wanted you to catch, is that his choice as king would be a lowly servant, and that he would choose to humble himself as he approaches us. It's mind-boggling. But this is who he is. By the way, on the back of that colt, he's about to enter a crowd that's going crazy. But I can tell you this. I, I learned from riding horses that the spirit that you had on that horse would transfer. If you got worked up and nervous about a situation, your horse would figure it out and they would be nervous. You're now in a very difficult situation. But if you could find a way to stay calm, you could actually calm your horse. This is an untrained colt. It should have killed a lot of people. It should have run rampant through that crowd, scared to death. I actually, saw, I actually saw somebody get run down by a horse one time because they thought they would build a wall in front of a panicked horse. And we were all like, do you work with horses like us? And he just like got ran right over. That's what you could have expected to see, except that our lowly king was so calm in spirit, he was not about elevating himself, that as he walked into that crowd on that colt's back, as a lowly servant, that colt remained calm. It's incredible. The whole picture of it is incredible. You want to know what stronger is? It comes with humility of heart. And that's exactly the way Jesus came towards us. Second thing that I want to highlight happened in the streets. The streets of both locations would have had greenery in them. In Rome, they lined it with garlands. In Jerusalem, as Jesus entered, they pulled branches off of palm branches and started swinging them around. Now, this would have uh, obviously freaked out the, the cult, but didn't. And uh, more to the point, what many people don't understand is that palm branch was an actual symbol of rebellion in Rome. There was a group of people who wanted to rise up and overthrow Rome, and that palm branch stood for that. And so as they're waving that palm branch, they are telling Jesus, we're ready for a revolution, and we want you to lead it. We want a war. We're in. You're our guy. Let's do this. And here's the thing. 
Jesus had their salvation on, the, on his mind. In, in fact, they were all yelling that. They were all yelling, oh, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us. So you have these two groups of people, one yelling triumph, victory, the other one yelling save us, which is fitting because Jesus talks about his mission early on, early on. This is in Luke 4.18. This is Jesus himself talking about why the Spirit of God has been laid so heavily on him. And he says this, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free. What was on his mind? Your freedom. Our freedom. See, Rome said, real power chains people up and drags them behind humiliating them. God said, no, real power takes the chains off of these people, removes their humiliation, and finds a way to let them have the life they were always meant to live, and that's who I am. Real power was meant to free. And when he came in, the, I mean, that, that had to just be like the height of a moment for him. This whole purpose for coming was to set the oppressed free, and he's surrounded by people who are cheering for freedom. The one problem was they were focused on Rome, and he was focused on their hearts. And he knew he could supply some freedom for them. If they were open to the kind that he was willing to deliver, but they wanted a war instead, and it had to break his heart because he was so close to delivering on what he wanted for them. They wanted salvation. They, want, they wanted the wrong kind. Rome's power said, I'll oppress you, and you'll live with it. God's power says, I'll free you if you want it. Do you see God approaching you with your freedom in mind? Because if you don't, you'll interpret his guidelines, his boundaries, the things that he says to you as an attempt to restrain and constrain you, and you'll miss that what he has in mind is your freedom. Ultimately, living a way that would honor him, that's good. He approaches you with freedom. A third thing that I want to point out happens in the street as well. The people who were there in Rome were bribed to be there. The people in Jerusalem were there in their own free will. Now what's odd is both groups were severely oppressed by Rome. 50% uh, of those in Rome were slaves. In fact, what they're out in the street celebrating happened to them at some point. Rome came into their province, killed tons of people, captured them and put them as slaves in Rome. And now they're having to celebrate that this is happening in other people's lives. That had to be like swallowing glass. But both of these groups of people are oppressed. One's there because they're forced, intimidated, threatened. The others are there because they had a desire to honor this Jesus that they had seen work. By the way, a lot of people have made the mistake 
of saying these people who were there celebrating Jesus as he entered into Rome were pretty fickle because very, very shortly thereafter, they're chanting for his crucifixion. You be careful with the timeline. Be careful with the timeline. The people who wanted to put Jesus to death did their work in the dark of the night, literally and figuratively. They did it in the secret of the night. They were making their moves while most of those people were asleep. And by the time they were up and ready to start their day, Jesus was on his way through Jerusalem to be crucified. These were not the same groups of people. They manufactured a group of people for the Romans to hear. But the people who were in the streets cheering would have been so heartbroken because this person that they thought would lead them to victory, lead them to some sort of freedom is now apparently going to die and there's nothing they can do about it. This would have been devastating for them. But here's what's important. Here's what I want you to grab. See, in Rome, stronger was we could get you to do this one way or the other. We can threaten you. We can bribe you. We can do whatever we want. But because we hold the power and we're stronger, you'll do what we want when we want it. And God said, I'm going to approach you and give you a choice. I'm looking for willing hearts. You can be here if you want. You don't have to be here if you want. That's a choice that you're going to have to live with. But it's not about a threat that I'm going to bring down on your life. I'm looking for willing hearts that will join my team. I'm not going to use threats. My power, my strength comes in my offer to you. These are stark contrasts that people would have picked up. Now, there were some other things that we don't have time. We don't have time to. But I think there's stuff in all of these, too, um, that would, again, made this connection that what we're reading here is an attempt to mirror a triumphal entry. Uh, Jesus goes to the temple. The triumphal entry in Rome goes to a temple. There's a statement that's made by Jesus. He actually laments how they have missed their opportunity for salvation and that the destruction of Jerusalem will be headed their way because they've missed who's in their midst. So he makes a statement just like the general would have come out and made a statement. I love this. There's a crown hanging over that guy's head. It's gold. What's Jesus' crown made out of? Thorns. And it'll be pushed onto his head. He was not a mere mortal. And they were whispering in the ears of this guy so that he wouldn't think he was a god. The contrast is crazy. But there's one other thing that I want to I end with because I think it's important. The reason Rome was celebrating a triumphal entry is because they believed that they were celebrating peace. Peace. They brought about peace by killing as many of their enemies as possible, putting them on display so that other people would be terrified to rebel against them. And they called this peace. And this, this was their idea. They would actually tell you, the reason you're here today shouting triumph and victory is because Rome has blessed you with peace today. <laughs> oh, my I want, I want to read you something 
that Jesus said was again at the heart of his ministry. This is in John 16, 33. Jesus' words, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. What he intended to deliver, what he wanted to do in our lives was to offer us a peace that no matter what else was going on in our world, we would still know that we at least had right standing with God, that he loved us, that there was a peace to be found outside of the circumstances of our lives. This was done in this way. In Rome, they came in dragging their victims, saying, we've, we've delivered peace to you. In Jerusalem, on a lowly donkey, the victorious king of the universe sacrificed himself for your peace. He didn't sacrifice everybody else. He knew what you were up against. He knew that if you ran into sin, it would drag you through the streets and humiliate you. And he didn't want that for you, so he died to remove that from you so that you could experience peace. Do you think of God approaching you that way, that what he has in mind, what he really hopes for your life, is that as he gets close to you, that you'll experience peace. A sense of, I think God's got me on this. I'm okay. That I can trust him. Because that's, that's how he's approaching you. I, I want you to see this. If you don't have this picture in mind, if God who approaches you isn't somebody who comes with humility, who has your freedom in mind, who's looking for a willing heart, offering you peace, then you've got the wrong picture and it could mess up your life. What I want to do this morning is I'm, gonna, I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads for about 30 seconds and we're going to be quiet and I want you to reflect on what image you have of a God who approaches you. And if it's not this one, I hope you'll start making adjustments to it because this is the God who loves you. And he would like to approach you as he is, not as you think he is. Not as the images that we have that are so corrupt and bankrupt for what power does and is. He holds power. He loves you beyond all measure. And he approaches you in this way. Will you let him? Will you give him that time to approach you now? Will you just bow your heads? think of power, everything about how you did it 
is counter to everything I know. But you have a love for us, a deep abiding love that causes you to approach us in a way that we would not expect. You come with humility. You come with our freedom on your mind. You come looking for a willing heart that would like to take some peace and you offer all of that to us. God, as Easter approaches and we have a lot to celebrate, I ask that you would help us adjust the way we think about you, that we would see you as you are and not as the images and pictures of what we think power holds and does you because of it. God, we love you. You are indeed a good, good father. As you approach us, may we be open to hear from you in Jesus' name. Amen. We are so glad you're able to experience what's happening here at Waypoint Community Church through our podcast. Prayer is that these resources are a blessing to you. Please be sure to catch us again next time.